I was always so proud of how well I thrived under pressure and stress <laughs> until that happened. It's like it took my body literally having this reaction for me to be like, oh, no, this is not normal. You have a level of stress tolerance that most people would crumble under. And so if you're really at this level, it's time to press pause. And I realized that the environment was what was toxic. The pace of it was what was toxic. Our bodies are often the wisest part of who we are but we regularly override the messages they send us when they tell us we're at capacity. We end up conflating anxiety and exhaustion and overwhelm with weakness or some kind of moral failing. So we push ourselves till we crash. And this is often normalized, sometimes even celebrated as a part of how we do work in life. And many may not have a choice to do anything differently as they try to just make ends meet. So their bodies hold the burdens of stress and exhaustion from a deeply flawed system around work and healthcare. So then our bodies just have to turn up the dial even more to get our attention, often at a great cost. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. Culture plays a big role in why we often miss important messages about our capacity. We push through, overwork, see physical and emotional pain as something to overcome instead of as important data to take into account about our needs and how we're living. And even if we do take in these messages clearly and see the need for shifts in care, it feels like change is not an option or even acceptable. And when the body dials up the pain or the anxiety to finally get our attention, the default for many is to become at war with the messenger, seeing our bodies as the enemy instead of the culture of work and healthcare as the culprit. This is only reinforced by the expectations from work and what we perceive as everyone else seems to be doing it all with ease, right? <laughs> I vividly remember a conversation I had with a former supervisor I was living overseas running a program that was growing quickly past my ability to meet its needs. I cared for a volunteer board of community leaders and often recruited to fill seats, cared for my existing volunteer leadership team. I raised over six figures every year for the annual budget, along with all that's involved with caring for donors and community care. I planned for and promoted our annual service project and regular events along with doing the individual and group work with the students I was serving and supporting every day. When I shared how this felt unsustainable and I was wearing out from the pressure of it all, my direct supervisor told me that maybe I should just burn out and come back to the States after one year. Now, I could not believe what I heard. I still feel like that kick in the gut feeling as I heard that my well-being was not important. And the message I received was loud and clear. If you can't do it, go ahead, cave, and we'll find someone else to do it. The message I was expendable was not a new one. There was always this sense that I should feel fortunate to have the job I did, no matter what was asked of me. And I bought into that for a long time, even professed it, sadly. It was what I breathed in my whole life. Now, I love to work, and I've been fortunate to work in spaces that interest and excite me. But when I got sick or needed to travel for a family wedding, I felt like I had no wiggle room for living life or just being human. Work always came first, and I often saw my colleagues brag about the relational, physical, and emotional sacrifices they experienced in the name of work. 
so something seemed off, but it it was hard to tease out as everyone around me was acting like this was normal. So after studying human behavior and psychology for almost two decades, I see things more clearly. First and foremost, I see how early childhood traumas and difficult life experiences coupled with unrealistic expectations around how we work, along with the things we do to keep access to healthcare and societal pressures are contributing to the reckoning we are facing with how we work while caring for ourselves and our loved ones. The Adverse Childhood Early Experiences Study, often referred to as the ACEs study, is a groundbreaking study that was conducted by the Center for Disease Control and Kaiser Permanente in the mid-1990s with the results coming out later in the 1990s. The initial study focused on how traumatic childhood events may negatively affect adult health. Now, this gold standard research study of 17,000 asked participants about their experiences with childhood maltreatment, family struggles and challenges, and current health status and behavior. And the ACE study found a direct link between childhood trauma and the adult onset of chronic disease, incarceration, and employment challenges. The higher the number of your ACE score, the greater the incident of serious physical and health struggles in addition to challenges with steady work and relationships. Now, in 2015, the Rice Center adapted this framework and added much-needed data and language to update this important study where it also took into account generational trauma, race, social location and conditions, and local context while noting the ongoing impact of microaggressions, implicit bias, and epigenetics. Their updates also named the physical and neurological impact of these collective experiences so they could be understood more and addressed instead of pathologizing and othering. And in addition, they shift the language from calling what people develop from these ACE experiences as disorders, which are so individually focused, and move to seeing these responses as distresses, which are normal responses to past and continued stressors. Now, my guest today discovered the connection to her own childhood distress as she faced growing her own family while working through healing from an unsustainable work schedule where burnout showed up, took her out, and then ended up changing her career trajectory. Rachel Cook is an award-winning business strategist who believes entrepreneurship doesn't have to be so complicated. Through her business, the CEO Collective, she helps women entrepreneurs to scale sustainable businesses without the hustle or burnout. And when she's not working with women entrepreneurs, you'll find her playing board games with her three kids and husband in Richmond, Virginia. So pay attention to the key inspirations in Rachel's early life and family that now inform her life's work. Listen for Rachel's burnout story. It is one I suspect many of you can relate to. And notice how she's able to navigate caring for her aging parents in ways that stretch her, but don't take her out. Now, please welcome Rachel Cook to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Rachel, I'm so glad that you're here and I'm so looking forward to this conversation today. Thank you so much for having me, Rebecca. I know that we're going to have an awesome chat in, in prepping for our conversation, I came across a story that you shared 
that I ended up watching on repeat. It, it really moved me and it, it really feels like it's the heart of unburdened leadership and what inspires kind of what you do. And, and you've learned a lot about business and entrepreneurship and community from your father, who was also a small business owner. And I'd love for you to take me back to when you were a kid back in the eighties and, and your mother experienced a really serious accident and ended up in a coma for six months while your father was caring for you. He stopped working, cared for you and your young siblings. Yeah. Walk me through how that season influences how you lead your business in life today, along with the key lessons that you learned about community. Yeah. Oh my gosh, this is such a big one. But I'll say this is one of those things that you can only connect the dots looking backwards. And it took me a while to understand why I had this pull to do things differently than a lot of other small business owners and entrepreneurs. And it all comes back to my own experience as a small child. So my parents were actually both entrepreneurs. My mom was a soil consultant. So she started this business where she was essentially doing environmental impact studies. Anytime a new um, development was being planned or they were going to go in and do construction anywhere, she would go out and test the soil and create the impact study and say, here's what you are able to build on this piece of property. And so in, you know, 1980 four to 1985, 86, 87, she was like the only woman doing this. And it's so funny because she told me recently, um, the month before she got hurt, she got hurt uh, July, 1987. The month before she got hurt, she had her first $10,000 month. And I was like me being me. I'm like, what is that in today's dollars? It's $22,000 in today's dollars. Wow. And that is amazing because keep in mind up until the eighties, a woman could not go and get a line of credit or a loan for their business until like 1985, 1986, a decade before could even go get a bank account without a husband signing off on it. So now making $22,000 in today's dollars, very few women entrepreneurs do that. I think it's less than 5% of women entrepreneurs and small businesses are making that much money. So my mom was incredibly successful and way ahead of her time (laughs) in a lot of ways. My dad started an insurance agency in 1985 and anyone who knows anything about the insurance world, I mean, it is very much a sales focused business. His whole job is selling insurance, all different types of insurance, but he specialized in commercial insurance, home insurance, property insurance, things like that. So when my mom got hurt, she had literally dropped me and my sisters off at our babysitters, who we called Nanny. It's like (laughs) a family babysitting where she had a few kids she watched every day, and she watched the three of us. I was four. My sisters were two years old and eight months old. And so literally, my mom had dropped us off and was at the stoplight headed to her office, and she was making a left-hand turn through the intersection, and a tractor-trailer hit her. She was a second car in line and it hit her driver's side door. So mom had a traumatic brain injury. They had to use the jaws of life to pry her out of the van. If any of us were in the van, we would not have made it. They told us there's no way any of us kids would have made it if we would not have just been dropped off. We would have all been gone. Um, But she was in a coma for three months. She, She woke up right before 
Um, I remember right before my little sister's birthday, she didn't know she had a baby. She kind of vaguely remembered being pregnant and my little sister was about to turn a year old. So she was in the hospital basically for the next two years. So I, my mom kind of was gone from the time I was four until I was six. And I remember my dad literally was like, I can either fight for Laura, my mom, because back in 1987, there was not a lot of support for traumatic brain injuries. There was a ton they did not know. Um, and they wanted to take her off life support a couple times. There were a few oh. people who said, her, she's too far gone. She's been on life support. She's in this coma. She won't, it, she's going to be a vegetable, they basically said. And he fought for her. I'm pretty sure he punched a couple of doctors in the nose at some point. And at the time, I mean, my dad was only a couple years into his business. We are so lucky that the group of guys who all started in the insurance industry at the same time, they had all come through sales school together. They had all come through their training together. They literally rallied around my parents. And for a solid probably six months, those guys were like, John, you take care of Laura. We're going to rotate our agent numbers. So we'll give you the commissions so you can take care of Laura. And they did. They kept us afloat because her business was instantly shut down. There was no way anybody else could do that work. She basically had an, a part-time assistant, but no one who was qualified to do that or step in. Um, and my dad, same thing. Like He had a part-time like receptionist, and that was it. So it was a really... I mean, crazy time that I hope no other family has to go through. But fast forward to now, what that really drove home for me is my mom has very few memories of me as a small child. I have very few memories of me as a small child. And something happened to me when I started having kids. My twins are now 12 and my youngest is nine. And when I had my youngest, I was turning the same age. My mom was 31 when she got hurt. I was 31. And here I had these three kids under three, mm. kind of the same ages of me and my sister. And I had this like moment where I was like, oh, this is why I'm doing things differently because tomorrow is not promised. And I don't want to sacrifice these years with my kids hoping that one day I'll get that time back because you might not get it back. Yeah. Just letting that breathe for a moment. So I want to circle back a couple of things. I'm thinking about your mom in the eighties in the kind of agriculture agrarian business as a woman. I just want to acknowledge that I grew up in the Midwest. So I'm familiar with that culture and that, took a lot of fortitude, no doubt, and the oh, stories that she could tell. Um, the other thing that I kept kind of repeating in my mind is your father's kind of colleagues who were also just starting out. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about the commissions, if they would basically like give him the credit for a sale and, and they would rotate that so that he had some income coming. They just, there was a community that said, we're in this together. And it just, I had to pause and knowing how much, even still today, these kind of things send families to bankruptcy or yeah. they miss the care that they need. And so that the recovery or it doesn't happen or a recovery stunted, all of these things. And there was something about you, this gift of your family rallying, having a family member in town. And then this group of colleagues that just like came in and I'm thinking, 
if we did that more, I mean, I know this happens. I know this happens, but it's not enough. And I thought, I mean, and this was back in the 80s. And, yeah. and and I'm just thinking now it's even more individualistic and more people are more and more islands. Um, so I just just wanted to, to reflect on that. I didn't know that about your mom. And I just want to make sure to give her major props as part of your story, too, and 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 what she did. And, and it's also powerful, too, because sometimes of those of us in small, lean businesses, there isn't someone who can fill in for what no. we do in service-based Um the other piece of standing out to me is just when we hit those ages, those milestone ages, when our kids do that, maybe when we went through something difficult, our bodies remember, <laughs> our bodies I remember. absolutely had that experience. And I remember talking to a friend who it wasn't that her, um, she didn't have a parent who got hurt. She had a parent who passed away when she was mm. young. And when she hit the age that her mother was when her mother passed away, she had a similar experience to what I had when my mother got hurt, which was like this whole like, holy crap, I'm this age, something could happen anytime. You, It's almost like you reprocess all of it again, yeah. right? And yeah. it is, um, it was kind of intense that that whole year was pretty intense because I was rumbling with with that, I was dealing with small children. I was kind of like, well, I better get everything in order. And I did. I mean, I set my business up so that if something happened to me, we have an emergency plan. We have wow. a plan for if I can no longer run it, what's going to happen? If I can only run it partially, what's going to happen? If I have to step away for a period of time, what's going to happen? I was like, I'm contingency planning the heck out of this because I'm the only income earner for my family. My husband's a stay-at-home dad. And I knew when we made that decision that it meant I had to make sure that if anything happened to me, his first responsibility wouldn't be trying to figure out how to run the business or take care of business or run back and try to get a job. Like I would want to put my partner in the situation where they could put me and the kids first instead of immediately going to, how am I going to pay for all this? So you talk about, you kind of became like the contingency superstar in that piece. And it and it, it's interesting because I do hear this a lot with those I work with who've had any kind of scare like this and then get really focused on that. But um, I, I would like to just hear a little bit more about community and where community plays a role in your contingency plans too. Community plays a huge role. I really am kind of old school in the thought that business is built on relationships, right? Mm -hmm. And I think this is something we've especially since so much has moved online into the digital space, we kind of miss that. And there's something magical that happens when you invest in real relationships with people, not transactional relationships with people, but real meaningful relationships. And I'm finding it's, um, I want to say kind of it's rare, but also I find these amazing people who are so aligned, they totally are on the same page with me. So something that has just always been with me is I started this business knowing that each person who hires me, one, that is a gift to me. That is a gift to my kids. That is a gift to my family. They are helping me make this life happen. Right. And I don't take that for granted at all. I'm always just incredibly grateful. And whenever I have a new client sign on to work with me and my team, I mean, a little prayer goes out to thank them for that trust that they've put in to me and to thank them for the gift of being able to do the work that I love and be paid for it. I think that's one huge thing. I do find that I think something that's helped me so much is just this intentional 
building of a community, not just a network, like a database of phone numbers and emails, like a real network. And I find that this is something that people don't know how to do anymore. And again, I think the internet has kind of broken this for us a little bit. And here's totally. my, my way of thinking about this is think about how hard it is to make friends as an adult. It is so hard, right? Because we, most of the friends we had, you know, early on when we were kids, it was like whoever sat next to you at school on the bus and the playground, when you went to college, it was like your roommate, whoever was in your sorority or um, was in classes with you. You get your first job. It's those people who were there in that. Exactly. And it's all of a relationship of convenience, right? But when you go out there to be a business owner, especially a business owner who's predominantly marketing and serving people via the internet, mm -hmm. then we don't have relationships of convenience anymore to lean on. We have to be intentional about putting ourselves in situations where we can meet interesting new people. And we have to be really intentional about cultivating those relationships. So and you touched on a lot about time and it feels right now too, it's so fleeting. Yeah. And, and honestly, so many are strained just to keep their heads above water. So how do you prioritize cultivating these strong relationships and community with all of your responsibilities? Because I hear a lot of people saying, I just don't have time. I, I don't have it in me. I don't have the bandwidth or, you know, that's not my personality or those kind of things. So how do you yeah. prioritize those things? Well, I will say one, I am actually a super introvert. I'm a highly sensitive person. I definitely go and hide quite a bit. So I'm not the person that's out there like networking, working a room, going to every single thing. Like if I go to a big event the next day, I am like introverting very hard. <laughs> Me and Netflix are hiding out. But I think when it comes to this, the thing that comes to me the most is, you know, historically, pre all of this capitalistic society we had, women were very communal. We lived in community. We raised mm -hmm. families in community. We supported each other in community. And it's only been the last, what, 200 years that we've been really drifting away from that. And so in some ways people say, well, I'm barely keeping my head above water. I don't have time to build a community or to surround myself with community. But my thought is you're drowning because you're not surrounded by community, because you don't have those people to lean on. Mm, Do you know I what I mean? That. I have people in my family, friend, like non-business friends community because my local community, right? So if I need help with my kids one day, which is one thing I hear anybody who's raising children right now, we are going mm -hmm. through some crazy stuff. But I know that we have this great neighborhood community that we have intentionally cultivated relationships with. We have a great family that lives across the street from us. Their kids are about the same age. They are also homeschooling. And we tag team all the time, all the time. A couple weeks ago, my husband and I had an appointment early in the morning. Earlier that week, I messaged uh, Angie, the mom, and I said, hey, can the kids come hang out with you for two hours on Friday morning? Absolutely. And we do that. We tag each other in back and forth. If she needs something, we're there for her. If we need something, you know, vice versa. And because we've intentionally cultivated that, it makes it so much easier. It makes it so much easier. And that translates into business too, because... I have these women in my business community who, when I 
I'm always out there meeting people. I mean, I'm sure you are the same way. Like it's hard not to meet people when you've been in this as long as we have. Right. And what I have found is not everyone you meet is going to become like a soulmate person where you're like, oh my God, this person totally gets me. I want to spend more time with them. But when you do meet those people, you know, like there's some tug, like you're like, Ooh, I like this one. I need to spend more time with her. And it's just a matter of intentionally touching base. So there are a couple of people locally here to me. Um, I'm in Richmond, Virginia, which happens to be a great city for women in business. Um, I'm also on a mission to get more people to move here because <laughs> it's it's a great place to be for business and for raising a family. And for those people locally, I will regularly call them and say, hey, let's co-work together. Hey, let's meet up for lunch. Hey, I see you're doing this really cool thing. Can we meet up and, and talk about what you're working on? So I'm always connecting with the people who are local to me to spend time together. And even people who aren't local to me in Richmond, I have a lot of business friends in the Raleigh area, a lot of business friends in the DC, Baltimore area. And I will message them and say, hey, I'm pulling together a little mastermind day. Are you interested in coming and spending time with me that day? Because I've got this beautiful space. So I have people who will come to me just as a peer-to-peer day. And half the time, we don't even talk about business. We're just talking about the whole gamut of like what's going on in our lives. But it becomes that connective tissue that we need, right? It's because we've carved out that intentional time and I aim to host these things once a quarter, then it becomes so much easier to one, have that in-person time, which really solidifies relationships. But it also gives us the little nudge we need to continue those more casual in-between, like voxering back and forth or messaging each other on social media or whatever, so I think it's it's a lot of that. It's a lot of intentionally carving out that time to build that deeper relationship. You know, I'm thinking about the objections I often hear because I, I feel like there's still a narrative that a lot of people hold, and I've had to battle it too, that I don't need that. Or if I need it, that means I'm doing something wrong Ooh. Vers- versus, and it's real, it is. versus you know, what you said is as much as we need oxygen, we need what you just talked about, that connective tissue. Yet there's this narrative, particularly, I mean, I'm thinking about even sticking in my neighborhood with my incredible mom friends and community, in addition to those that I know and those that I work with and support, there's some, there's still this message that I need help. It's like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I need this versus, Hey, tag your it. Can you help me? And I got you next weekend. Can you speak a little bit to that? Cause I'm, I'm sure you hear and see that too. Yeah, I think because of, again, it comes back to my own personal experience, how I was raised. My family had no choice, but to ask for help. Mm-hmm. I come from a very big family on my dad's side. I'm one of 26 first cousins with multiple oh my gosh. variations. Um, big Catholic family from my mom's side. She's one of six. I'm the oldest of 15 cousins. And I think in my life growing up, I was just always surrounded by family. And because of my mom's situation, there was always help. You know, she couldn't clean the house. We always had someone come take care of the house. We couldn't be, you know, alone with just her because she couldn't take care of small children. So we always had babysitters. In fact, from the time that mom was 
really home again at, in 1990, we had Joan, who we we just thought of her as our second mom. She literally made my wedding cake. She made my kids Christmas stockings. And Joan started being there to help and support my mom around the house, taking her to run errands, taking her to doctor's appointments. And as my mom's needs grew, Joan just was always there, right? She was always in the house taking care of us. And to me, that's just so natural that of Mm. course you need help. Of course, if there's some limitation, it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to lean into other people and ask for support. And I think this comes back to that rugged individualism that we have just been raised in this whole, like, well, you be able to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I call BS on all of that. All of my success Mm -hmm. has not come from me having all the credentials and degrees. It has come from the people I know. Every big opportunity that I've ever had has come from a connection that I nurtured, that I spent time with. And then they reached back to me for a speaking opportunity or an interview or to attend a conference together. Like that has opened all the doors. It hasn't been my bio. It hasn't been my books. It hasn't been how much money I make in my business. It has been the connections that I have made that continue to open doors for me. Well, you nailed it with the rugged individualism because I'm thinking about how I was raised and I grew up in the Midwest. So it was like, you know, you're out there shoveling snow and below zero weather and you, you know, you've got to figure it out, you know, and I grew up in a home where my parents ended up getting a divorce and family wasn't close by. And so, but we did lean on other people and have community. The contagion of rugged individualism, especially on women, on moms and those who parent, it has been toxic. And I love what you just said. It wasn't your bio, wasn't your credentials. It wasn't the thing, these incredible things you produced. These are all incredible things you've produced and achieved was your relationships is what you give credit And it's the relationships outside of work that you credit with your success. So I love that you came into entrepreneurship with asking for help and getting help. And that's kind of a given. It's a part of the gig. It's not not this sense of look what I did. Because when I was, I remember there was this incredibly brilliant guy I worked with on Capitol Hill. He was in charge of all the finance. And, you know, he he, he was like one of 10 people at the time who read the whole tax code through mm-hmm. <laughs> and was very proud of it. And he would come in and brag about how much he worked and how much he was at the office all week and away from his family. And so there's that, those kind of narratives that are out there too. Like I did this and I sacrificed, but that actually isn't, really pushing, moving the needle forward for anyone, especially ourselves and the things that matter most. I don't think that's doing anybody any favors. And I think someone like that has a lot of ego who, if they're saying, and I'm just going to say it, like if they're saying I did it all myself, I alone did this thing. Like one, how much privilege do you have to be able to say that? Because somewhere behind you is someone running your household, making sure there's groceries and food and your laundry is done and your dry cleaning is picked up. Somebody is educating your children. Uh, There's just an immense amount of privilege behind that. So I feel like for people who are like, well, look at me, look at me, I'm doing it all on my own. Like, no, you're not. You have people behind you and there's probably layers and layers of people who you're not even acknowledging or recognizing how much they're doing in order to make you be the person at the top. I have nothing to add to that. 
Yes. And we need more of that. We need uh, we need more people talking about that. So thank you. And just briefly, before we move off of your family, I, I think this is really important because you're now you're talking about how you're now in the position of caring for your parents and your young kids, yeah. what is often called the sandwich generation. And and so I'd love for you just to speak. I know people listening to this are in that situation, too. So for you, what are the trade-offs that you weigh to care for your family, your aging family and your growing family that helps keep burnout at bay? Yeah, I think, like I said, I've been contingency planning for a long time. (laughs) So (laughs) it definitely played in my favor. Um, I knew very early on that at some point I would be responsible for taking care of my mom. I just knew that. I knew that her health was going to continue to, as she aged, require more and more and more care. So the writing started to be on the wall a while ago. You know, I kind of knew that we were headed in that direction. So what kind of has happened for me in the last couple of years is the pandemic really accelerated a lot of this too. My mom broke her ankle and anybody who has an aging parent knows you're just one fall away from a very quick succession of events that can, you know, totally incapacitate your parent. So my mom Mm -hmm. broke her ankle, was no longer able to move herself with her walker, had to be put into a convalescent center for three months so that she could have help because she couldn't put any weight on her ankle. At the same time, you're off your feet for that long and you're, you lose all your muscle mass. So now she's permanently in a wheelchair, can no longer do any of her daily living activities on her own. She can't shower, go to the bathroom, dress, prep food. Like she needs round the clock full-time care. And I kind of knew once she broke her ankle, because we'd had a few other little incidences, I was like, "Mm, this is not going to be good. And then the pandemic happened and she was, you know, locked in the house. So I kind of knew I was going to have to step in because my parents just were not doing well. And when I you know, the first year of the pandemic, we were all like, let's stay away from mom and dad. We don't want to get them sick. They're elderly. They're not in good health. Let's kind of not worry about it too much. But by the time Thanksgiving rolled around in that year, I was like, oh my God, I think my dad's going to drink himself to death. His stress is off the charts. He does not know how to handle. He has no coping skills for handling round the clock nursing care in the house. He couldn't even sleep in his own bedroom. He was literally sleeping in a recliner because he couldn't sleep with the nurses coming in and out of the bedroom all the time. And mom was just continuing to get worse. So I kind of gave my team a heads up. I was like, I think I'm going to have to step in here with my parents and handle some things. So let's put a plan in place so that when I do that, I can operate on low gear and everything else runs. And thankfully, because we have the systems and the, and the team that we do, you know, they were like, no problem. We've got, the marketing systems are rinse and repeat. The sales processes are rinse and repeat. If you can show up for five to 10 hours a week, we've got everything else covered. And so that's what last year looked like for me. 2021 was a series of, you know, business going on autopilot, me putting my dad in rehab, putting your 71 year old dad in rehab is a whole journey. Um, I stepped in and took care of my mom and The reason I could do that was because one, I've been doing my own work on my own trauma. I've been doing my own work on being an adult child of an alcoholic. I've been in therapy for my own managing anxiety 
since I was 18. My family couldn't understand why I was doing all of this stuff, but I was like, no, this is not normal. I shouldn't be like this. Um, and so I think having these practices for so long, like I immediately called my therapist and was like, Hey, we need weekly sessions. I need somebody to kind of hold space for me to process this stuff. So I'm not dumping it on my husband or my sisters or anybody else who I knew couldn't take it. I reached out to my own coach in my business and I said, Hey, this is happening. Can you be my sounding board for me? you know, kind of moving a couple things around. And I also have had a lot of self-care practices. It's one of those things where I realized very early on as someone who's highly sensitive and has struggled with anxiety and panic attacks in the past, I also struggle with um, chronic pain and fatigue, which is apparently super normal for people who've struggled with childhood trauma (laughs) because you internalize all that trauma and it physically hurts you. Exactly. I have had these practices of, I mean, probably what a lot of people would consider extreme self-care. I have a chiropractor. I have a massage therapist. I get acupuncture. I go do floats. I do everything I can to manage my nervous system so that I don't have to take a handful of pills and numb out. And because I've had that foundation, when it came to this, my first thought was I need to call in my emotional support team I need to call in my physical support team, my doctors and my all the people who help me feel as good as I can. And I need to call in the business support team. I was just like, who can I call? I need all the support right now. So I fully stacked my support as much as I could. I mean, I was scheduling out every single thing I needed for me because here I am meeting with accountants and lawyers and doctors and all these people for my parents. Yeah. Leaning into community again, leaning into support, asking for help. Exactly what I was going to reflect. I'm just like, it was so in your bones that this is what you do. You ask for support, you lean into community, you problem solve. And you had the knowing as a, as a, as an adolescent, Hey, this isn't actually how I'm supposed to be. I, I want to circle back on something you said that often gets almost weaponized on social media. I think it's really dangerous. And you talked about as things were deteriorating with your parents and knowing that you needed to step in, you talked to your team and they said, okay, if you can do five to 10 hours, we got you. Yeah. Now I often hear uh, like whether it's social media or just some of these circles, like I only work five to 10 weeks and here's my fancy lifestyle. I'm kind of being a little overly dramatic about it, but that wasn't what you were saying there. And that was a hard earned intentional so that a lot of a lot of years of pregame work and strategy yeah. and learning and testing that got to the point where you could do this. It wasn't a flash in the pan. And for people who work more than that, they're not failing. There's a lot of just jacked up messages about work and success. So yeah. I wanted just to make sure I I named the circle back to that when you needed to pull out. It wasn't like this weird badge of honor or so, but it was something that you had prepared for and made margin in your life and business for? My business was designed for this. Uh, And for me, this was a few different things. Um, One, I don't work one-on-one in a way that like my business depends on it. So I always have a few back pocket one-on-one people because it's fun. 
but it doesn't, it's not my biggest revenue source. It's a small percentage of my revenue. The majority of my revenue, the bread and butter of my company is the CEO collective program. And that is a group program. So it's not just me delivering it either. I'm not the only person creating content. I'm not the only person coaching in there. I have a whole team of mentors who coach my clients. I have a whole group of people who come in and teach expert master classes. So I don't have to drive that bus solo. I have support in the marketing team. Um, I have support in my sales team. I have support in the delivery team. I'm not solely responsible for any of those things. And I think that's really, really important because if you don't have marketing and sales happening, you know, then the revenue dries up and you're stuck. If you don't have other people helping you deliver your product or your program or your service, then if you're not available, you get stuck. And what happened for me was the biggest thing I needed to show up for was our weekly coaching call that I host inside of the group. And you know what we decided? We decided that my director of operations could pop in a couple times a month and host that call for a few, for a few months while I was really in the thick of it. And our clients loved it because they got two brains for the price of one. They had, you know, me, who's the person that they knew coming into this program. And then they had Amber, my director of operations, who has not only been behind my business, but multiple seven and eight figure businesses. And I think the other key thing is I don't do anything in my business that isn't building an asset. I don't believe Ooh. in creating things for the sake of creating. And I think this is one thing, if you take one thing away that you can implement, it is create assets in your business that you can rinse and repeat. And so because I think of all of my marketing as an asset that is there, not just to be a you know content couch potato on my podcast feed buried all the way in the bottom, I pull those things out because if it was good a year ago or three years ago, it is still good now. Yeah, repurposing. There is this push to always be doing something new and different. There's, again, more toxic messages. But I want to move a little bit and talk a little bit more about burnout because I touched on sure. that. And we're, we're obviously talking about this We're in 2022 with the recording of this. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about burnout for good reason. And mm -hmm. as we, you've been talking about creating a sustainable business in life without burnout. Yeah. That often feels fleeting to many. Yeah. And you've already already teaching today that's it's it's about community, it's about building in systems. But I'd I'd like for you to kind of walk me through what was going on in your life and family when you faced your own burnout that led to some of your some judging and some yeah. changes that you made in your life and work. Yeah. Well, I didn't really rumble with this until I was in the consulting world. So when I Finished my MBA, I went straight into the consulting world. They they basically recruit out of MBA programs. That's what happens. You're going into finance. You're going into MB, you're going into consulting, and a lot of those programs, the first couple years of being in the consulting world, I mean, they are going to grind it out. You are going to be living on the road. You're going to work 80 hours a week. Um, you might be home on Sunday, and then you're just going to want to sleep the whole day. Um, that was my life for several years. And I finally hit the point where it was right before I was about to get married. And I remembered I kind of had to beg for a few days off for my wedding. They, so not cool. Yeah. They were like, there was, they really didn't want to let me have a honeymoon after my wedding. They were like, you're already taking two days off to go home for your wedding. And I was like, Jesus, you know, they, it was just super ridiculous. Um, 
So toxic. <laughs> so toxic. And at the same time, you and are common. there indoctrinated with mm-hmm. this is how you succeed in this career. If you want to go on this path, this is what you do. If you can spend a few years with us as a consultant, you can take any job anywhere. And that's the big promise for going into consulting, right? If you if you go into consulting, you will know so much about how businesses work that you mm-hmm. could basically go in and, and do almost anything you could imagine with your career. But they burn people out hard. They burn people burn out burn. hard. And I started having panic attacks for the first time. I was driving home from DC. I was on interstate 95 and I started having a panic attack in the middle of rush hour traffic. And if you've ever driven around DC coming down out of Northern Virginia, I thought I was going to straight up die. And so I pulled myself over the side of the road. There's like all of this traffic and tractor trailers rushing past me. I'm thinking I'm having a heart attack. I call my husband and I'm like, Where's the closest hospital? What do I do? Because um, I'd never experienced that before. And so I ended up having 10 panic attacks in 10 weeks. I was mm. going to hospitals almost every single time because no one was saying it's a panic attack. They were saying, you're fine. It's just stress. Um, let me give you a handful of Xanax and um, whatever else. You're fine. It's just stress. Let's just yeah. pause for how jacked up that is. But yes, sorry. But that's what they did, right? And so I actually took... Um, short-term disability leave for three months. I filed for short-term disability from my job. Legally, you can do that. You can call whoever's on your HR team and say, hey, I need, I have a, I'm having a health emergency. I need short-term leave. And I took that time. And instead of going to the doctor who really wasn't helping me, I found a therapist. I found a life coach. I found a yoga teacher. I found a <laughs> everybody who could possibly help me. And that's when the first time I ever heard burnout, um, that was the first time I ever understood or started to dig into anxiety and panic attacks. I was always so proud of how well I thrived under pressure and stress (laughs) until that happened. It's like it took my body literally having this reaction for me to be like, oh no, this is not normal. You have a level of stress tolerance that most people would crumble under. And so if you're really at this level Um, it's time to press pause. And I realized that the environment was what was toxic. The pace of it was what was toxic. So when I decided to start my business, it was all kind of accidental. I didn't leave that job thinking I was going to start a business. I left it thinking I need to take care of my health for three months. I didn't even know if I was going to come back or not. And so I was on a yoga mat because yoga helped me so much. If you don't believe in mind-body connection to manage stress and trauma, I'm telling you, Yoga saved my life that summer. Um, And I went to one or two yoga classes a day. I became very close with my teacher. And she Mm. said, I know you're, you don't think you want to go back to consulting, but have you ever thought about, you know, helping someone like me? I'm a couple years in this studio and I'm struggling. And that was like my light bulb moment. I was like, oh yeah, there's these small businesses that don't know business. They just started it because they love what they do. And So I started with her and as I really started thinking about this business, like if this is going to be a business, what could it look like? What's the potential here? Then I got pregnant with twins six months later and that's what solidified it for me. Because once I got pregnant with twins, for me, it was a high risk pregnancy. Um, I knew I had to do it different. I knew that I couldn't just repeat what I was doing in the consulting world in my own consulting company. I had to drastically reevaluate how I was going to 
work, how I was going to think about work and how I was going to think about how I could help people. I mean, again, even in your face down burnout moment, you built a team, mm-hmm. you built a team of people to help you. And the mat was your anchor. And I, I love the light bulb moment. I, I'm grateful for your yoga teacher for asking the question that she did. That's a really cool origin story combined with getting pregnant with twins. So here we are today. I'm curious how your approach to building and running a business decreases the risk of burnout. And how does that approach differ from conventional wisdom? Well, one thing is I I went into this business knowing a couple of things. One, I, I was very clear about my time available, right? I went into my business thinking, I physically only have bandwidth for 20 to 25 hours a week. And that's what I had. If I did any more, I would have nothing left for myself or my kids or my husband. That's just when you're coming out of burnout, um, (laughs) you really have to consider that. And Mm -hmm. I think constraints are good because constraints make you get creative. Yes. So if you only have 20 or 25 hours a week, then you got to be focused on the highest value tasks that only you can do in your business. And guess what? It's not bookkeeping unless you're actually running a bookkeeping business. But it wasn't bookkeeping and it wasn't managing my inbox and it wasn't following up with, you know, what time can you meet me on these things? Um, It was creating content, having sales conversations, connecting with other people to get those opportunities for interviews and speaking and so on and so forth. So that constraint was there. My energy was a huge constraint for me. I knew that I could not do things that were going to pull me so far out of my, what my energetic capacity was at the time. And I think it's really important to know what fuels you up and what drains you. So there are some things that will absolutely drain you in your business. And if you use those things as like where you're putting your time, you're just always going to be exhausted in your business. You're going to start to resent it at some point. So anything that drains your energy, outsource it, put a system in place, get something there. There is some other way to make that thing happen. Mm-hmm. I was like, what, what gets me excited? What lights me up? I only want to do those things. What would it look like if I only focused on the things that light me up and that re-energize me? So okay. that, I gotta pa- let me pause you though. When I hear you say that, it sounds different than maybe I've seen maybe bro marketers say that. Yeah. It feels different because I've heard that like, dude, I don't do anything that doesn't jazz me. But then I'm hearing you say, I'm like, yes, it makes sense. It's, I mean, obviously we're getting a sense of your story and what drives you, but yeah. Can you speak to that? Cause I'm, I'm hearing, I know a lot of people hear the same things, but they sound and they're landing differently. Yeah. This is something you have to pay attention to it. And one of the tools I use a lot is I track my time. I have a CEO planner that I've developed and I track my time and I track Every day I'm asking myself, like, what was great about this? What wasn't great about this? Mm. And I pay attention to the things that I'm not looking forward to. I pay attention to the things that I dread. I pay a lot of attention to the things I'm procrastinating on or not taking action on because those are indicators to me that I should not be doing those things. But the things I get excited about, the things I look forward to, the things that afterwards I'm like, yeah, that was so great. Those are the things I want to do more of. And actually, here's a tool that really helped me. I have a client who recommended, there's this thing called a Garmin VivoFit. And it has this little thing on it that they call a body battery. 
and basically it's tracking your HRV, your heart rate variability. So it can tell basically when you are in the relaxed state, which is where all the creativity flows. That's where you're in the flow. You're in the zone. You're really, really productive. Like everything's coming effortlessly. Your body's in that rested, calm state. And it also tracks when you are in the fight or flight or freeze response because your stress response drastically changes. So it was interesting. She recommended that I get that. And I started comparing on my app when it was telling me I was in the rest state and my body battery was charging. And when I was in the fight or flight state and my body battery was getting depleted. And that helped me. If you, if you have a hard time assessing these things on your own, sometimes tools like that, I love, I'm a nerd. I love tools like that because it helps me validate what I'm kind of thinking. And I realized there were just things that got me so excited. And that by the end of it, I was, I was more rested, which might sound crazy. Like I'd finish a call with a client who I love and I, my body battery would have charged a few points, but driving on the interstate, my body battery is like ticking down. (laughs) And so what I'm taking away from this, it's not just something to brag about or just to be like elitist about. It's about paying attention and collecting data and knowing yourself. Yes. And then taking action on that data. That's what I'm hearing from this. Yes. It's it's about doing what is aligned for you. And what mm-hmm. works for me is going to be different from other people, right? You have to know yourself. You have to think about, is this aligned? Does this feel good? At the end of it, not at the beginning of it, because sometimes at the beginning we get a little bit nervous and then we think that that's, you know, an indicator that it's a bad thing. I think nervous nervousness and being excited are on the, they're like two sides of the same coin. So I just choose to be excited. And then afterwards I go, how do I feel? Well, that felt great. I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting because our bodies and brains don't know the difference between nervous and excited. They just see that the elevation. And so that could still be a drain too. So if we're always operating at this like intensity level that can set us up for a crash also. Yeah. Um, So, but on this topic of burnout, though, Mm -hmm. another kind of common theme that I've heard people say, especially earlier in my 20s, was it it seems that people assume that some amount of burnout is necessary to succeed. I remember when I was overseas and I was uh, building out this, uh, this chapter of an organization I was working with and I was fried. And he said, well, maybe you don't stay four years. Maybe you come back in a year and burn out and that's all you do. Like it was like a good thing. And I'm like, dude. No, this is that, that's yeah. not helpful advice. So I, I'm wondering, was that if that was your assumption too initially that some level of success was connected to burnout? And if so, how and when did your idea of success change to something yeah. more sustainable? I think I initially thought that that might have been true, um, especially because my dad had to work so hard to grow his business. Like he definitely mm-hmm. had to hustle and grind it out. And I remember <laughs> I was going through my burnout when Tim Ferriss's book first came out, The 4-Hour Workweek. And I remember seeing it at the bookstore and looking to my husband and being, that is such bullshit. There's no way that's real. And then like a year later, I'm reading it and I'm like, oh God, okay, there's some interesting things in here. (laughs) But I think, you know, we have been indoctrinated by American capitalism that our value is based in our productivity 
And I think that is so terrible. It has built this whole society of people who they literally don't know how to rest. No, I don't know. I had to practice rest. I have to practice rest. It takes me, there's a reason I have to only work four days a week. It's because it takes me all day Friday to get out the anxiousness of, oh, I'm, I should be resting now. And then Saturday, I actually can enjoy my weekend. And you also have to be willing to kind of deflect all the people who are still very entrenched in that mindset. I remember when I started my business, mm. my dad was like, have you lost your mind? I can't believe you left that paycheck behind. You were making more money at 25, 26 than I made when I was 40 something. And I'm like, dad, it was going to kill me. And to him, the, the paycheck was more important than my health was more important than seeing my husband was more important than anything. And I'm sitting here going, I'm not going to die on the side of interstate 95 for a paycheck. Like I'm worth more than that. <sighs> I'm worth more than that. Yeah. Productivity and paycheck over life and well-being. We're in an interesting, we're continuing, we've been reckoning for a while, but I think we're, oh. it's coming to a peak. I think I've just been kind of a little ahead of the curve on this, <laughs> but <laughs> it is coming to a peak. And I'm, what I'm seeing right now is this pandemic has shaken things up. It has flipped the script so much that people are realizing, you know, a lot of the things they were told were the only way are no longer yes. the only way. And they're seeing yes. that, well, what is possible if instead of spending 10 hours a week in my commute, you know, an mm -hmm. hour there and an hour back, I take back that time and that gives everybody two hours a day. So for everybody who is like, I don't have any time to work on my mindset. I don't have any time to work on my mental health. I don't have any time to work on my physical health. I don't have any time to spend with my kids. I don't have any time to spend with my partner. Like they just got it all back. And I think it's really making businesses reevaluate what is it that we are compensating people for? Are we compensating people for what they bring to the table in terms of their experience and their talent and what they can do contribute to the business? Or are we compensating people for how many hours they can sit in front of a screen? And exactly. honestly, if you look at the research, they're only productive 30% of the day anyway. So why are we working eight hours a day? Why don't we just shift everybody to, you know, 30, 25 hour work weeks? We're no longer in a society that depends on us sitting in front of something eight hours a day. That's ridiculous if it's not productive, if it's not actually leading to a result. So yeah, the, yeah. The, the, I have a lot the of grind on this one. <laughs> I'm glad you, I do, I'm with you. And I'm, I'm just the grind of it all and the sense of this is what it means. Like your worth and values connected to your grind, that messaging. Yeah. You know, whether it was my former colleague on the Hill or folks that are just doing the best they can to get a paycheck, but are in, you know, in a, in a company or an organization where yeah. they have, you have to be seen. And even my husband, who's an educator, he's like, he's like some of my colleagues and he's, a, he's an APU as history teacher. He's amazing. But he's like, you know, my, my profession is a bad rap because some of my colleagues have gotten really good at looking busy, but doing nothing. <laughs> And <laughs> because they know that's how they survive because the system says, oh, they must be important because they're super stressed out and busy and fluttering around. But my husband's like, they're doing nothing. And so there's because they're playing the system. And mm -hmm. and so I think we need to keep reckoning with these things. And I'm, I'm just sitting here 
with the uh, grateful for the inner wisdom your system had to know this isn't okay. I'm worth more. I need to take time to reevaluate. I need help. And I'm hoping whoever's listening to this, those any parts of them that are yeah. saying, you know, who do you think you are to ask for this? Who do you, you're weak for needing this to recognize that, that we breathe this in from really toxic systems that don't have our best interest at heart and that yeah. you're have a credible life example for that. So I'm really, really grateful for this conversation today. But before you go, can I ask you some quick fire questions? Sure. All right. Awesome. What are you reading right now? I just picked up Unicorn Space by Eve Rodsky. She wrote a book that really blew up the last couple of years called Fair Play, which is all about the division of labor in the home. And she has an operations consulting background. So she looks at your home and family the same way you would look at a team on in a business. And I loved her book Fair Play because for anyone who has ever felt like you share the role of default parent daily grind in the household, you take the lion's share of all the emotional labor that goes into running a home. She lays out how to get your partner on board with like deconstructing that. She even came up with a whole card game around, you know, helping the division of labor within a home. And it was one of those books that I was like, oh, this is so, it, it spoke to me so clearly because now I had something I could point people towards. And she wrote her second book called Unicorn Space, which is all about helping women find a creative time for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, she says a lot of women don't have something that is just something they do just purely for themselves, for the love and the joy and the creativity of doing something. We tend to say, well, I have time to work out or I have time to go get my hair done. Like those are maintenance, y'all. That's not real self-care. Going to the doctor, going to the dentist, maintenance. That is not true, deep, meaningful self-care. She says in her book, Unicorn Space, love that. that the thing that really fuels a lot of us is tapping into these passions and these things that we used to love and somewhere we left behind because we were told, well, it's not productive or you can't monetize it or any of that. I love that. Thank you. I can't wait to check out that book or both of her books. What song are you playing on repeat right now? <laughs> Well, my daughter had the phone today when we were in the car. So we listened to a lot of Florence and the Machine. <laughs> oh, love them. Have you ever seen them live? Florence, I saw her running back and forth this, on the stage while hitting these notes. She's amazing. She's amazing. And she's a redhead. She's a redhead too. So I'm biased. She's amazing. She's okay. Amazing. What's the best, what's the best TV show or movie you've seen recently? If you haven't watched the new series that Brene Brown just dropped, the Atlas of the Heart. It's a series that she produced with HBO Max, I think. Yep. Um, I literally went and signed up for HBO Max just so I could watch it. And it is so brilliant. I'm it's brilliant. I'm so hoping that there's more series like this coming out because it makes this kind of information so accessible to so many people. I literally messaged like my whole family. I was like, here's watch my login. This. Come watch this. We need to talk about it at our next family meeting. <laughs> I love that. I love that you gave a shout out to that. Um, what is your favorite 80s movie? Oh, God. Um, Dirty Dancing. Oh, good one. Dirty Nobody Dancing. Maybe in a corner. Me a minute. I was thinking like, hold on, 80s <laughs> movie, Dirty Dancing. Definitely. That, that works. What is your mantra right now? Let it be easy. Mm. What's in an unpopular opinion you hold? Mm, I have so many. 
Bring it. That your income potential does not have to be tied to your time. That fits. That lands. Who or what inspires you to be a better leader and human? Honestly, my kids. My kids. Because I want them to be able to go into companies and have careers with businesses that care about them and that are going to treat my 12-year-old daughter the same way they treat my 12-year-old son. They get paid the same, have the same opportunities, have the same accessibility to parental leave and to fertility support and to whatever else. They are the reasons I'm trying to build a new paradigm of business. I hear you on that too. Rachel, I know we only probably touch the tip of the iceberg of things that you could share. So I hope you come back again. But for today, thank you so much for your time. This was a treasure and I really appreciated you sharing so much of your heart and your story and your wisdom. Thank you so much for having me. This was, this is fun for me. So this is definitely one of those things that uplifts my body battery. I'm fully charged after our conversation. Likewise. Thank you so much. Thank you. When you listen to your body, you may not like what it's telling you, but the imperative to listen and take action to care for the rest and healing you need has to rise above the pressure to suck it up and push through. The way we were taught to work and live is only making us sicker. There are other ways to show up, and I'm grateful for leaders like Rachel who help us see a different path to how we can work and how we can lead ourselves and others. What messages is your body sending you that you may be dismissing? And how is the way that you see your work and your own self-care impacting you and those you lead and support? Where are you out of alignment with your values and how you're working today? And in today's conversation, Rachel reminds us that our body will shut us down if we don't listen. After experiencing repeated panic attacks and then facing the echoes of trauma from her childhood as her family expanded, Rachel ended up building a business that not only supports her stopping that toxic cycle of work, but also teaches entrepreneurs and business owners how to work and lead sustainably. Now this is the work of an unburdened leader. Leading is hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. Now, you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Now, leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. So when the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you, where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, 
innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your unburdened leader coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can find ways to sign up for The Unburdened Leader weekly email, this episode, show notes, and also free Unburdened Leader resources, along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com.